Four days ago, a major British newspaper had a photo on the front page of a house in East Jerusalem that had been reduced to rubble. The caption under the photo read, Israel destroys the home of a Palestinian who ran over and killed two people at a Jerusalem tram stop a day after two militants killed four rabbis and a policeman at a synagogue in the city. Now, in those two crimes, the the actual perpetrators were shot and killed by police at the scene of the crime. But the follow-up, as part of the government's response to those crimes, involved a practice that has been around in that part of the world for thousands of years. And that is the destruction of the perpetrator's house. And that act is a vivid, tangible declaration that there will be no sanctuary, no safe place for people who do such things. In Ezra chapter 6, when King Darius issued his decree authorizing Zerubbabel and Joshua to to, to begin again with the rebuilding of the temple in Jerusalem, the house of God, He followed up that decree by explaining what was to be done with the houses of anyone who opposed that work of God. Ezra 6, verse 11, Darius says, And I issued a decree that any man who violates this edict, a timber shall be drawn from his house, and he shall be impaled on it, and his house shall be made a refuse heap on account of this. And may the God who has caused His name to dwell there overthrow any king or people who attempts to change it so as to destroy this house of God in Jerusalem. I, Darius, have issued this decree. Let it be carried out with all diligence. In the two visions that we're looking at this morning in Zechariah 5, we find the same approach with the same kind of vividness. The houses of those who oppose God will not stand where His house exists. His dwelling place in the midst of His people. God will allow no sanctuary for those who stand against the sanctuary of God. In the first vision in chapter 5, it's the sixth of eight visions of Zechariah, The cast of characters is very simple. There are two entities in this vision. Zechariah's angelic tour guide, who has shown up repeatedly in the previous visions, and Zechariah himself. And the entire vision is an interaction between these two. What Zechariah beholds in the vision that the angel shows him is a huge flying scroll. It's 30 feet by 15 feet. It's about the size of a billboard on the highway. And there's a prophetic curse written on each side of that flying scroll. On one side is the declaration that everyone who steals will be purged away. On the other side is written, everyone who swears will be purged away. And in verse 4, there's a little clarification about that second one. Verse 4 says that it's talking about the one 
who swears falsely by my name, by the name of God. Now, the scroll itself is explained by the angel as the curse that is going forth over the face of the whole land. God says that that scroll, that curse, will enter the house of the thief and of the one who swears falsely by the name of God, and it will spend the night within that house, and it will consume it with its timber and its stones. This image... God destroying the houses of the cursed shows up in Ezekiel 26. And the curse there is the curse against a city-state on the coast of the Mediterranean Sea, on the coast of Lebanon, known as Tyre. And that passage says that God is going to bring a fierce army against that rebellious city. And it says, God says, I will break down your walls and destroy your pleasant houses and throw your stones and your timbers and your debris into the water, into the sea. And a couple of verses later, God says, you will be built no more, for I, Yahweh, have spoken. This passage is about God acting decisively to eradicate Sin and those who are enslaved to sin from the place in which He will dwell in the midst of His people. Now, why does God single out just these two kinds of sin in this vision? There are many who believe that the two sins that are specified represent all of the prohibited behaviors found in the Ten Commandments. And I I think that that has real merit, but I want to look a little more closely than that. The first sin is swearing falsely in the name of God. And because that is a sin directly against God and against His character, many consider that that sort of encapsulates the first four commandments. The other prohibition is against theft, which is a sin against men. And I should say the other judgment in this case. And sins against men are addressed in the other six commandments of the Ten Commandments, so you could kind of break it out that way. And again, I think that has merit, but I think that it's important and valuable for us to explore a bit more deeply what it is that makes those two sins so representative of the things that God is at work to eradicate in this context. And I believe that God is singling out those two for a specific reason that is very much tied with the rebuilding of the temple that was already underway in Jerusalem. His promise throughout this book is that He is going to come and dwell again in the midst of His people in the place that He promised to their forefathers, in Jerusalem. But before that can happen, things have to be set right. Particularly the very things that had brought about the judgment that had cast Judah into exile in Babylon for 70 years. For God to return to His house, some other houses had to be torn down. In the first few verses of the book, we saw that the central exhortation of the entire book is God saying to Judah, return to Me that I may return to you. But what about those who will not return to Him? I'm going to start with theft. One side of the flying scroll says that God will purge away those who 
steal. So what's so special about stealing? Why doesn't God instead curse those who commit murder? Isn't that worse? Or who commit adultery? Or who covet other people's things? Well, in singling out thievery or stealing, I believe that he is indeed addressing those other sins. Think about the sin of theft. It's really at the heart of every other sin that men commit against other men. Murder is by definition the theft of a life that belongs to God because all life belongs to God. Look at Genesis 9 after Noah got off the ark at what God said to him about requiring the life's blood of every man because it belongs to him. Adultery is the theft of the sacred one flesh relationship that God has given as a beautiful gift to a man and a woman. Covetousness is the consuming desire to take what God has given to someone else because you're not satisfied with what He has given to you. All of these sins against men that the law forbids are forms of theft. At the heart of it, theft is the antithesis of love for our neighbor because thieves take what love gives. In Ephesians 4.28, Paul says, Let him who steals, steal no longer. But rather let him labor, performing with his own hands what is good, in order that he may have something to share with one who has need. Hard work done God's way is not for, for hoarding, for selfish gain. It's done for the blessed privilege of acting as God's agents to reflect His His benevolence, His graciousness toward our fellow men. There's another kind of theft that I haven't mentioned yet that I think is that plays in here, more accurately, robbery, as God calls it. And as I read this little these few verses from Malachi, the prophet who came after Zechariah and Haggai, listen for wording that you've already heard in Zechariah. Malachi 3, verse 7, From the days of your fathers you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you. I hope that sounds familiar by now. Says Yahweh of hosts. But you say, how shall we return? Will a man rob God? And that's a very interesting pair of questions. How shall we return to you, Lord? Shall a man rob God? The implication of that question is that that when we turn away from God, we're taking something that belongs to Him. We're stealing from Him. And God answers, they say, will, will a man rob God? And God answers, yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? God says, in tithes and offerings. You are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse so that there may be food in my house. And then he says, and test me now in this, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open up for you the windows of heaven and pour out for you a blessing until it overflows. See, I'm a God who gives. And when I give, I give abundantly. I give 
an overflowing measure. And yet you withhold from me what belongs to me. When we treat material provision that God puts into our hands as if it belongs to us instead of to Him, we're stealing from God. And when we do that, we violate His benevolent and gracious character because He has given so freely and so abundantly to us. This is where I believe God's declaration to Zechariah that He's going to purge the land of those who steal ties together with the rebuilding of the temple in Jerusalem that was already underway. Because the same discontent, the same distrust in the faithfulness of God that causes men to steal from men causes men to steal from God. It's because we really don't believe that He's that good a provider. Such things cannot and will not be part of the redeemed place in which God will dwell with His redeemed people. God is going to eradicate all such violations of His character along with all of those who refuse to turn from such things to Him. On the other side of the flying scroll is God's decree that He will purge away, and I quote, the one who swears falsely by My name. And the words by my name are critically important here. This rebuke is especially relevant to Zechariah's audience because it is again closely connected with the rebuilding of the temple and with the return of God to dwell in Judah's midst. The sin of swearing falsely by the name of Yahweh is about God's covenant people appealing to His name or uttering His name in an oath Falsely, and by falsely, what God means is in falsehood rather than in truth. Now, I'll explain that in a minute, but some of you might be thinking, well, I never take the Lord's name in vain. When I cuss, I'm very careful not to use the name God or Jesus. So, good for you. You get an A for effort and an F for missing the point. Now, don't get me wrong. It is a sin and a grievous insult to God when we sling His name around as some kind of epithet. But that's not essentially what this sin is, what this passage is talking about. And it's also not essentially talking about swearing in the sense of bearing false witness in a court. Here's what it means in context, to swear falsely in the name of God. Isaiah 48, verses 1 and 2. Hear this, O house of Jacob, who were named Israel and who came forth from the loins of Judah, who swear by the name of Yahweh and invoke the God of Israel, but not in truth or righteousness. For they call themselves after the holy city, and they lean on the God of Israel. Yahweh of hosts is His name but not in truth or righteousness. Jeremiah chapter 4, verses 1 and 2, and there's some familiar language here as well. If you will return, O Israel, declares Yahweh, then return to Me. And if you will put away your detested things from, from My presence and will not waver, and you will swear as Yahweh lives in truth and in justice and in righteousness, then the nations will bless themselves in Him, and in Him they will glory. 
What's cool about that passage is that at the end of it, there's an evangelistic impact when we get this right. At the heart of the high priestly calling of Israel is God's call to them to rightly represent His character to all the nations. And when they do, the nations will bless themselves in Him and in Him they will glory. And when they don't, they profane the name of God and they hide their light under a bushel. The phrase, as Yahweh lives, is a common way that an Israelite would would assert the truthfulness of a promise or warning. It's kind of like if I said, I swear before God that I will pay back the loan that, that I borrowed from you with interest and I'll do it on time. But the problem is, Israel had a very consistent pattern of not keeping their promises either to God or to each other. And even more to the point, a promise that's made in the name of God demands conformity with the character of God. It obligates the one who is making that promise to act in a godly manner. Jeremiah 5, verses 1 and 2. Roam to and fro throughout the streets of Jerusalem and look now and take note and seek her, seek in her open squares. If you can find a man, if there is one who does justice, who seeks truth, then I will pardon her. This was before God judged Jerusalem and carried the people away into captivity. And then, then God says, and although they say, as the Lord lives, surely, they swear falsely. Israel and Judah had a long-standing habit of treating the things that were associated with the presence of God in their midst as some kind of a carte blanche. It's like a credit card with no ceiling on it. They loved to point to the temple and say, look, <laughs> it's the temple of Yahweh. It's right here with us. We have the temple, we have the priesthood, we have the sacrifices, we have the covenants. We're the people of God. Those things couldn't possibly be true of us if if we weren't in God's good graces, right? And so then they thought that they could act the way they wanted to and everything would be okay. Now in Zechariah's day, God had just promised Zerubbabel the governor of Judah, that his own hand would lay the capstone to the temple. He would finish it. And so God was setting before the Judahite exiles one of the foundational sins of their fathers. And He was assuring them that He would purge that sin from their midst. Now while they were still in the land the last time before the 70 years of captivity, God gave Jeremiah these instructions. This is really powerful stuff. Stand in the gate of the Lord's house and proclaim there this word and say, hear the word of the Lord. All you of Judah, all who enter by these gates to worship the Lord, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, amend your ways and your deeds and then I will let you dwell in this place. Do not trust in deceptive words saying, this is the temple of the Lord. This is the temple of the Lord. This is the temple of the Lord. 
For if you truly amend your ways and your deeds, if you truly practice justice between a man and his neighbor, if you do not oppress the alien, the orphan, or the widow, and do not shed innocent blood in this place, nor walk after other gods to your own ruin, then I will let you dwell in this place in the land that I gave to your fathers forever and ever. Behold, you are trusting in deceptive words to no avail. Will you steal and murder and commit adultery and swear falsely and offer sacrifices to Baal and walk after other gods whom you have not known and then come and stand before me in this house which is called by my name and say, we are delivered. That you may do all these abominations? Has this house which is called by my name become a den of robbers? Those are strong words. See, those who swear falsely by the name of God are those who swear by His name and violate His character. When you wear Christian t-shirts and then steal another man's intellectual property via BitTorrent, just because you can, you are associating God's holy name with your own violation of His holiness. When you put a fish symbol on your business card and then you give better quality of service to one customer over another based on the revenue stream that you get differently from between those two customers, you're insulting the holy name of your God who makes no such distinctions in the outpouring of His grace upon men. When you wallpaper the bumper of your car with Christian stickers and then lapse into a barely muted road rage when someone cuts you off at an exit, you're dragging God's holy name through the refuse heap of your own sin. And if you think those words are too strong, go back and read that passage in Jeremiah that I just read. Does it honor the name of God when we say, praise the Lord if things are going really well? And then we fall into an irritable, depressive funk when things are going badly? Do we prove by our actions that our own pious words are just a false pretense of hearts after God and not the real deal? See, God's name stands for His character. And when we appeal to His name and then proceed to violate His character, we are implicating God in our sin. How can we who have received such amazing grace from His hand respond to Him in that way? These things cannot stand and they will not stand. And that's a good thing. If you're not a child of God, your sins reflect your identity your heart, your real character. When you steal, you're simply acting in keeping with the character of the thief that you are. If you haven't had the spiritual heart transplant that God gives to every brand that He plucks from the fire, every person that He saves, then no matter how much noise you make about being good, no matter what association you might have with the people of God, no matter how fervently or loudly you call yourself a Christian, your life will only serve to dishonor God. Your best effort at righteousness 
will be filthy rags in the eyes of God. And make no mistake, there will be no thieves or liars in the city of God when He comes to dwell in the midst of His people. But what impact, what import does the stern warning in this passage have to us who belong to Jesus Christ? Does it mean that if you've stolen something lately, you're no longer covered by the grace of God and never really were? Does it mean that if you yelled at the guy who cut you off at an exit a couple of days ago, you're destined to hell? You can't take this vision in isolation from the ones that came before it. What happened in chapter 3 to Joshua, the man who stood as the representative of the people of God in the presence of God in his courtroom? God took his filthy clothes off of him and he says that he took the iniquity away from him and he clothed him in beautiful robes and declared him clean. The warning in this passage declares that the sins that are, that are being described and the people who are enslaved to those sins have no part in the kingdom of God. God will purge such men and such practices from the land before He comes back to dwell with His people in that land indeed when He comes again. So His people must turn away from the things that violate His character and return to Him. That's the appeal to His people. Ephesians 5, I believe, lays out this principle very well. Ephesians 5, starting at verse 3. Listen, listen to these words. But do not let immorality or any impurity or greed even be named among you as is proper among saints. And there must be no filthiness and silly talk or coarse jesting which are not fitting, but rather giving of thanks. And then listen to these, to these words. For this you know with certainty that no immoral person, no impure person or covetous man who is an idolater has an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. And then here's where it comes home for believers. Therefore, do not be partakers with them, for you were formerly darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. And then it says that the, that the light exposes the darkness and that's what God has called us to do. This is a very a powerfully important command. Therefore, do not be partakers with them for you were formerly darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. See, Paul doesn't say if you partake with them in any way, you prove yourself to be of the darkness. It's not what he says. He says, don't partake with them because you're not of the darkness. You're of the light. You are light in the Lord, so walk as children of light. See, God is going to do away with the darkness. He's going to do away with these things and with all who are enslaved to these things. They're destined to destruction. So why would you and I, who have had our filth removed by God's grace in Jesus Christ, want to have anything to do with these things? 
that is the appeal that God makes throughout the Scriptures to His people. 1 Samuel 12.24 says, Only fear the Lord and serve Him in truth with all your heart, for consider what great things He has done for you. It wasn't by our doing that we were plucked out of the darkness to dwell in His marvelous light. He pulled us out of that darkness entirely by His doing. And He's not finished with us yet. He's working right now and every day to purge every vestige of ungodliness from our lives. That work won't be finished till glorification day. But we must not take it lightly because that's His agenda in our lives. To conform us to Christ. To make us holy. Not just in position, but in practice. That unspeakable grace that makes our destiny the destiny of fellow heirs with His beloved Son is not a license for us to drag His name through the mud. That incomparable grace is all the compelling cause that we need to live lives that display His character instead of contradicting it. The second vision in this passage is Zechariah's seventh vision, and it speaks yet again of God's intention to decisively remove iniquity from His land and from His people so that He may come to dwell in their midst. The characters in the second vision, Zechariah's tour, angelic tour guide again, Zechariah himself, and a woman. A woman whose name is wickedness. Now this passage speaks of an ephah. An ephah is a measure of grain. It's about three-fourths of a bushel. And of course, you all know what a bushel is, right? The word ephah can refer to that quantity of grain or it can refer to the container that holds that quantity of grain. And that's what's going on in this passage. It's talking about a container. Now in terms of, of a real ephah, the, the volume that one would hold would be about the same as five gallons of liquid. It wouldn't hold a woman. So Zechariah is seeing this vision and he's beholding this container that looks to him like a, a storage container for grain, but it's a lot bigger than what he's used to. And inside of it is a woman. And at the end of the vision, the woman is hauled off by two winged female angels and taken to the land of Shinar. Now the people receiving this prophecy through Zechariah knew exactly what that was because they had just spent 70 years there. The land of Shinar was the region of Mesopotamia in which the city of Babel, later known as Babylon, resided. And of course, Babylon became the name of the entire nation that inhabited that land of Shinar during the time of Nebuchadnezzar's prominence. The original inhabitants of the land of Shinar date all the way back to the long list of nations that are found in Genesis 10 who descended from Noah. And one of those nations uh, gave, gave rise to a man named Nimrod. And Nimrod constructed several cities in the land of Shinar and one of them was Babel. Nimrod was a descendant of Cush who was known as a mighty hunter before Yahweh. 
Now, in the chapter right after that, in Genesis 11, you all are familiar with the story, the land of Shinar was the place in which the city of Babel became the capital city of the whole earth. All the people spoke one language. They all came together to one place and they decided they were going to build a tower to heaven. And they declared, let us make a name for ourselves. Is that why God put us here? To make a name for ourselves? No. He put us here to make a name for Him. We're His agents. God saw their hubris, their arrogant self-reliance, so He confused their language and He scattered them abroad from there over the face of the whole earth. And that was a gracious thing to do. In the opening verses of the book of Daniel, we see the description of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, who came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And it says, Nebuchadnezzar took the sacred objects from the house of God and he brought them where? To the land of Shinar, to the house of his God. And he brought the vessels into the treasury of his God. He took the holy, the sacred objects from the house of God and he took them to his pagan land and he placed them in the temple that he had built to his false god. Throughout the history of the land of Shinar and of the city and nation known as Babylon, that place and its kings and its people are presented as a kind of biblical poster child for the gross arrogance of godless men who fashion gods in their own corrupt image. Customized gods who will let them live as they choose. Grabbing relentlessly for power and prestige and earthly wealth and boundless self-indulgence. And that characterization of Babylon as the emblem of all who arrogantly stand against God applies not merely in the past, it applies all the way to the end of this age. Read Revelation 17 and 18. They speak of a woman, a woman sitting on a scarlet beast full of blasphemous names. A woman on whose forehead is found a very long name. Check this out. Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and of the abominations of the earth. How would you like it if your daughter came home with that as a tattoo? Verse 18 of that same chapter explains that metaphor of the woman very directly. It says, the woman whom you, John, to John the Apostle, the woman whom you saw is the great city which reigns over the kings of the earth. And what is that city? Babylon. It's the same woman here in Zechariah's vision, but she has a much shorter name here. One word. Wickedness. According to Zechariah's vision, what will be that woman's destiny when God unfolds His plan to return and dwell in the midst of His people? Well, in Zechariah 5, verse 8, right after God identifies the woman as wickedness, it says, He cast her down into the midst of the Ephah, and then it says that He cast the lead covering over the Ephah. And the in the good old American Standard, 1901 American Standard Version, you see that word cast twice. That reflects the original. 
He cast the woman down in the midst of the container and then he closed off the container by casting this lead weight, wham, against the opening of the container. Heavy, dense covering. Why? Because he was sealing her inside permanently. That's the picture. When Zechariah asked the angel where the the two female angels are taking this container that has the woman inside of it, the angel says they're going to build the temple for her in the land of Shinar. And when it is prepared, she will be set there on her own pedestal. The image here is of a pagan temple with a pedestal on which the idol is placed for public display. That was very common in the ancient Near East. But the object that will be set on the pedestal in that temple on public display for all to behold will be a box with a lead cover containing the woman who embodies the arrogance and abominable sinfulness of godless mankind. It won't be a place of honor. It will be a place of shame. This vision is a forceful declaration from God of His intention to bring about what He said He was going to do back in chapter 3, what He said He would accomplish through the one He calls My Servant, the branch. And that is, He will remove the iniquity of that land in a single day. His land. The land where He is going to return to dwell in the midst of His people. The land that Ron pointed out to us in Revelation 21 earlier this morning. Just as God slew the giant Goliath by the hand of a boy named David who removed that giant's head from him and who led the Israel, the Israelite army to, to utterly defeat the Philistine army all in one single day. So God will decisively, once and forever, take wickedness out of the way. And He will do it by the hand of the one Jeremiah calls the righteous branch of David in one day. Now how does that future event, it's pretty neat to to look forward to that, but how does that future event impact you and I today, right now? Here's how I see it. The rightful destiny of things must determine the allegiance that we give to them. I'll say that one more time and try to explain what I mean. The rightful destiny of things must determine the allegiance that we give to them. There are two kingdoms that are set before you right now. The one in which your body is presently standing <laughs> is a corrupt and evil kingdom whose ruler hates and opposes everything that is holy and good. That's this world. And we've got a little oasis here in in this room. But we live behind enemy lines. We live in a kingdom that exalts and advocates arrogant self-indulgence that sees true humility and selflessness and sacrificial love as weaknesses rather than virtues. The other kingdom is the kingdom of the One who Himself is the source of all that is holy and good and pure and true and worthy and honorable and loving and gracious and merciful and kind and righteous and just. One of those two kingdoms 
and its ruler and all of its subjects are destined to suffer the most humiliating defeat that the universe has ever seen. They will be utterly taken out of the way in a single day. But the true king and his kingdom, along with every citizen of his kingdom, are destined to abide forever. For the child of God who sees and understands what God has revealed about the rightful destiny of those two kingdoms, what is the only reasonable approach for us to take toward each? Well, the one that we inhabit in this world is enemy territory, and that territory belongs to the losing side. And that should tell us a lot about how we should approach it, right? If you have trusted in Jesus Christ as your one and only Savior, your ruler is no longer the prince of the power of the air who's presently residing over this cursed mess. Your ruler is Jesus Christ. And the kingdom of your citizenship is His kingdom. You may be here, but your citizenship is His kingdom. Can there be a convenient middle ground, a sort of dual citizenship (laughs) that allows you to enjoy the pleasantries and privileges of one of those kingdoms one day and then to enjoy the blessings and privileges of the other kingdom the next day or maybe the next moment? Absolutely not. If there's a message in this passage, that's the message to God's people. There is no dual citizenship. These two kingdoms are enemies and the hostility of one against the other is as severe as hostility gets because everything that one of them represents, the other one opposes. Everything. Allegiance toward one necessarily makes you a traitor toward the other. And the king of the true kingdom, the one who is coming back to defeat and permanently dispense with the unholy ruler and his kingdom, is exceedingly jealous for his people. When you flirt with that other kingdom, you're not only committing treason against your king, you're committing adultery against the lover of your soul. When we stop treating those declarations as theory, and we start taking them seriously, then we'll stop robbing God of what belongs to Him. We'll stop maligning His holy name with our unholy actions, and our lives will become an adornment for the doctrine of our great God and Savior instead of profaning the doctrine of our great God and Savior. Then we will be lampstands that show off the light of our glorious God for all the world to see. And that's when the words of God through the prophet Jeremiah will come to pass. And you will swear as Yahweh lives in truth and justice and righteousness, then the nations will bless themselves in Him, and in Him they will glory. If you see the exhortation of this passage as a burdensome guilt trip, then you see it through the wrong eyes. These visions are vivid reminders from a loving and gracious God to His redeemed people that cut through the nonsense of our double-mindedness 
and call us to be entirely His. Wives, how would you respond if your husband caught you flirting with another man one time? And he said something like this to you. He said, sweetheart, God gave you to me and He gave me to you to be one flesh. And I love you more than I love my own life. And I, I want to be the one that you desire. I want to be the object of your affection. Would you consider that to be overstepping? Would you consider that to be an unreasonable burden? Of course not. If you loved your husband, those words would pierce you to your heart and you would want to make it right. God plucked you and me from the fire to make us His inheritance, His treasured possession. (laughs) And so that He would be our inheritance, our treasured possession. He, He has set us apart to be the bride of His beloved Son. He removed our filthy clothes from us. He took the iniquity that was in our hearts and He put it on His Son and He paid the eternal debt of it. And He is at work to make us conformed to the image of His Son. To be fellow heirs with His Son. To stand before Him clothed in royal clothing. Inheriting everything that belongs to Jesus Himself. He has called us out of darkness into His marvelous light. We are children of light. So let's walk in the light. Loving Father, we look forward to the day that we know is coming when You are going to return and You are going to redeem this cursed place and You are going to glorify us whom You have set apart for Yourself. All creation waits eagerly for that day. It groans as if in the pains of childbirth. And when that day comes, there will be no unrighteousness in that place. Lord, we pray that we would reflect that kingdom, that the world would see our King and would see a preview of that kingdom when they look at us. We, we pray with all our hearts, Lord, You would make us serious about this. Not as some sort of impossible burden, but as as the the only reasonable and heartfelt response of those who have been plucked out of the darkness and placed in the kingdom of Your marvelous light. We pray this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.